Hello and welcome to the third in a series of podcasts by Arts Council England looking at key digital topics brought to light by the Digital R&D Fund for the Arts. That's a £7 million investment in digital projects across the arts sector delivered by Arts Council England, Nesta and the Arts and Humanities Research Council in partnership. This third programme is about distribution and exhibition. That means using digital technologies to deliver artistic experiences and content in new ways, whether that's online or in actual venues like cinemas and theatres. In this programme, we'll be exploring the live streaming of orchestras, how the Berlin Philharmonic launched a digital concert hall. When you buy, for instance, a new Sony TV, you will find the digital concert hall pre-installed there which is great because it moves the concert experience from the study to the living room and this is actually the place where you should enjoy these concerts. How the Royal Ballet pulled back the curtain at the Royal Opera House. We were very adamant with this day that it was a vehicle for attracting new audiences and we really wanted a big player like YouTube to be on our side. And the sometimes thorny subject of copyright. There's a mantra, if you can hear it, if you can see it, you need to clear it. As a producer or a distributor, that is your responsibility. But first, my guests on the programme today. Joining me in the studio are Hassan Bakshi, Director of Creative Industries in Nesta's Policy and Research Unit, Paul Bennon, co-owner and Chief Creative Officer at Something Else Productions, and Joanna Ellis from an organisation called The Literary Platform. Welcome to you all. Some introductions first of all. Joe, tell us a bit more about The Literary Platform. What do you do? The Literary Platform was set up two and a half years ago by my colleague Sophie Rochester and it was really a site which was set up to explore new creative opportunities for literature with regards to technology and so we review products and services and also provide various analysis pieces from practitioners and creators in those fields. All delivered online? All delivered online. It's a free website. Paul Ben and something else, well-known production company specialising in radio and television, online content and games. How is the way that audiences consume content changing? It's a really good question. It's changing in many ways. Some of them are technical due to the devices that people have. Obviously, more and more people have connected devices that can run computer code in them themselves, which means that the sort of services that you can get are changing. But more to the point, these devices have changed the way that people feel about content and people's expectations of content. So it's changed content and the services, the products fundamentally. It's changed how people think about them. And it's also obviously changed the creative and commercial potential for those services as well. And Hassan from Nesta, which is one of the funding partners behind this digital art and D project, what opportunities does digital distribution offer arts organisations in terms of growing and reaching wider audiences, do you think? I think our perception has been in recent years that arts and culture institutions can use digital technologies to take their art form in new ways and explore new directions. There's been a particular interest in the extent to which technologies can be used to open up new financial revenue streams, obviously in the current climate with tight financial conditions is an interest there as well. But I think our perception is that there's more can be done to explore how the new experiences can actually be created through new technologies. And we're going to be taking a closer look at some of those ways that digital technology can be used over the course of this podcast. But I'd like to start by looking at how digital technology can be used to overcome some of the obstacles to reaching audiences who would otherwise not have access to some live performances. 
We took a look at three case studies. Firstly, Dero, the Sage in Gateshead's digital R&D pilot project, which explored how to reach new audiences through streaming live orchestral concerts to audiences in partner venues. Claire Harvey, Adam Kent and Kirsten Swanston explain what they did. We recorded a series of three concerts, one from each of our orchestras. We had the Aurora performing Love Song from the City from the Roundhouse. We had Manchester Camerata performing Portrait of Love from the Royal Northern College of Music and Northern Symphonia recorded a concert from the Sage and Gateshead. All three of those concerts went out to a network of four rural mixed arts venues in Berwick, Annick, Durham and Otley. And they also went out on a variety of media platforms, including The Guardian Online, Medici and the BBC Music magazine. So on the night, we had several cameras dotted around each of the floors and our general director, Anthony Sargent, was presenting to camera on level three and did a brief announcement to the audience just to let them know what was happening. A lot of our classical audience are regulars who come here a lot, so they're familiar with the orchestra and the hall, and they were really excited about the thought of it going out and them being the audience there, but also they've been a much bigger audience watching online or in other venues. I think one of the learnings we've got from it is that the infrastructure is really key, the broadband infrastructure. So even though you can test a rural venue's upload and download speed several times over several days to make sure it can cope with it, you know, if that feed goes down for that area, then there isn't much you can do. So I think one of the things we'll be expressing is that when looking at partners in terms of venues to be able to broadcast performances, there needs to be a real investment in the infrastructure, not necessarily by the venue itself, but actually by the local authority or the network providers for the provision of a sustained quality of internet provision. Adam Kent, Kirsten Swanston from the Sage in Gateshead and Claire Harvey from A-Frame, who was the consultant on that project. Well, Hassan, we heard there about the danger of network failure. Mm. You can organise your theatre, your partner, you can have everybody sitting there, but if the line goes down, you're stuffed, aren't you? If something is successful, the challenge is trying to work out what aspect of the performance has been successful. Is it because technically, the in this case, uh, streaming was smooth? Is it because the way that the project was managed and it, how it fitted into the organisation was well managed and it's the process that worked well? There are many things that need to go right for mm. something to work. There's one thing that can go wrong and the entire thing can fall down. So it is a, about broadening audiences and it's inviting people to share an experience, not in exactly the same way, but offering them a similar experience, but possibly at a cheaper or even a free cost. I think that's right. I mean, the most obvious opportunity that digital technology affords is for performing arts organisations that have been traditionally restricted by their physicality, you know, the building that they perform within, um, is to enhance their virtual capacity. So there's a very obvious sense in which technology can be used to enhance access. Um, the big unknown, of course, is, and this is why there's an, a need to experiment and to do research and development, is uh, what the nature of this new experience is that's being created. What does it actually mean to hear Northern Symphonia mm. in your local cinema? live, what does it mean to hear Northern Symphonia in a rural area and what, two weeks and, after the And what that's worth to the consumer, how much should you price it at? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, the thing is the consumers themselves in many of these cases don't know what their preferences are. It's not a simple marketing challenge of trying to work out what consumers want. Actually, it's working with consumers to expose them to new experiences so they can actually work out themselves what they value. And Paul Bannon, uh, something else is expanding its remit. You're looking increasingly in your production house to online multimedia technologies and platforms. And I presume uh, this is an opportunity for arts organisations to extend an audience to events that are sold out. 
Yeah, I think what you've identified there is the fact that the network does something very, very fundamental to the way that content and and creative culture is, is transmitted. It takes away bottlenecks. You used to be in a world where bandwidth was scarce. Bandwidth consisted of the radio or television transmitters and receivers, that bit between those two, and that's gone now. So a whole range of businesses and creative practices that aren't based around scarcity can flourish. And yeah, this is one of the fundamentally uh, awesome things about it. This is all a good thing, despite the fact that the line can crash. Technology doesn't always work. Now, this is an interesting thing because it doesn't matter. Right. Now, let, let me... This provo- it matters if you've it's driven pro- 10 no, miles does. to the venue. It, it, turn it, it up depends it what work. kind of scale you're talking about. On some levels, it matters fundamentally. Obviously, on the night, you're going to be hugely disappointed and upset if, if the, the thing that you showed up for doesn't happen. But on a different scale, um, will the human race find a replacement for oil that's cheap and save our bacon? I don't know. Will the human race find a solution within a very small amount of time that's going to mean unlimited bandwidth wherever you want it that's reliable? Yes, we will. Hmm. So it's a short-term problem. And while it's very upsetting, I'm sure, for people for whom it affects on a night-by-night basis. It's a small problem in the bigger picture. It's a very, very small problem in the bigger picture. Well, another recent UK-based experimental project involved the Royal Ballet broadcasting a single day of rehearsals live from the Royal Opera House in London's Covent Garden, partnered with YouTube and also streamed live via the Guardian website. Tom Nelson, Insight Programme Manager at the Royal Opera House, takes us through the process. Royal Ballet Live was an attempt to open the doors to the process of creating ballet and opera. What we decided to do was a whole day of live streamed content from the Royal Ballet, nine hours in total, where we started right in the morning with class. Class is where a ballet dancer warms up their body for a day of rehearsals and they do it every single day of their working life. So we started our day with that. At 10.30 in the morning, we see class with the Royal Ballet. Then we moved on and we saw several rehearsals of ballets that are in the repertory that are coming up on stage. And then we finished the day with a public insight event where we had audience watching Wayne McGregor creating his new ballet with Mark Ronson. And it was just a fantastic way of celebrating the breadth and diversity of what the Royal Ballet do. We were very adamant with this day that it was a vehicle for attracting new audiences. And there's a few ways that we approach that. The first was that we really wanted a big player like YouTube to be on our side. It opened the door to a a massive potential audience. Then, secondly, we thought about how are we going to produce this content and make it work for several different audiences, our existing audiences who already love their ballet and new audiences who've never come to it. So we packaged it in such a way that it could work for both of those. And one of the key things was the presenter that we chose. We chose George Lamb, who is a very seasoned broadcaster. He does a lot of work for Channel 4, but he has a big youthful following in this country as well. And what was really interesting when we looked at the analytics post-event was that usually our YouTube videos the demographic is skewed towards the 45 to 60 female for ballet videos. For this event, the graph went completely the other way and our biggest demographic was 13 to 17 year old female. The other thing we found was that the average viewing time for the live stream was very high for YouTube. It was 15 minutes per view across the whole day, which they were really excited about and we were really pleased with too. 
That's Tom Nelson, Insight Programme Manager at the Royal Opera House on the Royal Ballet Live project, uh, which went out back in March. And just to add to some of those statistics Tom was talking about there, 194,000 people watched on the day. There have been a further 780,000 views on YouTube. And that is apparently increasing by roughly 5,000 views a day. Joe Ellis, this is all about the added extras. It's the sort of thing you get on the DVD, isn't it? But how does that apply in the in the literary world? How, what what could you offer via the literary platform? As interviews with authors? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a lot of publishers creating additional content, whether that's something that's embedded in the actual book product itself. So whether it's an enhanced ebook or an app, or if it's I suppose, an extension of that product online, sort of generally free to use, so podcasts, video, text interviews. In terms of live, I suppose here literature has quite a different route or path to performing arts. Mm. I think over the last few years what we've seen in the literature space is certainly a rise of live events, more festivals, salons, absolutely a thriving. And we are beginning to see streaming of that, but it is still something I think that readers... It's a, it's a bigger category shift from a sort of live performance to watching a version of that performance on a screen to reading mm. to listening to that author talk. Yeah. Hassan, from the Nesta point of view, do you, do you sense there is an appetite out there for the added extras, the sort of thing that you wouldn't normally see front of stage? Yeah, I mean, I think the proof of the puddings and the eating, right? I mean, we know that these sorts of features can be incredibly popular. At the same time, I came across a very interesting example of the concept of a live read. There's a, a Chinese social network that I've just started working with, which between 10 o'clock and 12 o'clock at night for two hours, large numbers of users read simultaneously and share comments and interact over the experience they're having. So even thinking as traditional a solitary activity like reading has become social and has become perhaps partly creative itself through the feedback that people are giving. So I, I think, yeah, people clearly... Are interested. And I think the sociability as well is becoming embedded into the products themselves. So we see something like Read Mill or the Kobo or the Kindle where readers can share, not necessarily in real time, but they're highlighting passages and they're sharing yes. sort of comments on their social graph. And so this does create certainly a network around reading. And the other thing that we're seeing as well is in terms of live, one of the projects that we're working on at the moment with the reading agency, it's actually about how you can create virtual sort of connections, I suppose, or live connections between readers who don't have access to the library. So we're trialling a couple of projects in remote areas which are going to use Google Hangouts to create an online reading Mm. group. So it's for young carers Ah. and for older people Mm. as well. So trying to connect people in smaller groups, I think there's something very interesting to be said around the network's possibility of creating intimacy for people and access for people. So instead instead of a group of people going around to somebody's house with a a chosen book and a Mm. bottle of wine, Mm. you all meet online instead? Yeah. Well, let's move on to the third of our case studies, and uh, we head to Germany to the Berlin Philharmonic. Their project began in 2008. It's a paid-for service streamed live online, on demand, and it also offers behind-the-scenes content via their digital concert hall. Tobias Muller explains more. The audience we address with the digital concert hall is, of course, different from the audience in the Philharmonie. Many of our online visitors may never have visited a real concert hall, but on the other hand, they are probably much more at home with digital media than our live audience here in Berlin. The digital concert hall is a first, so there were a lot of problems to solve, like installing these recording facilities in the Philharmonie, which is a historical site, so you cannot just drill a hole wherever you want. Uh, The technological quality had, of course, to match the artistic quality of the performances, 
And at the same time, we wanted to avoid cameramen or extra light in the hall, which would disturb the concert. So ensuring a worldwide live streaming in HD is anything but trivial either. <laughs> the benefit for us is a particularly interesting story because there is a long way to go before you make money with such a project. It takes time to attract a considerable number of paying visitors. We have currently more of 10,000 of them, and they are either subscribers and pay 15 euros per month, or they have bought a 12-month ticket at uh, 149 euros. And this audience is developing very well for us. That's Tobias Muller from the Berlin Philharmonic talking about their digital concert hall. Hassan Bakshi, what would you say to those arts organisations who would worry that distributing, offering content digitally, it's going to eat in to the ticket sales at the physical venue? Yeah, I mean, I guess the key question here is how substitutable in the eyes of audiences are these new experiences from the traditional experiences they've had. I mean, the only answer to this is to experiment and try course, it, the, the devil's in the detail here. And mm. If someone can get a free experience, it, even in the case of Berlin Philharmonic, would they forego that visit if the experience is free? We don't really know until we try these things out. It, we, we should just be clear here, it's not just about cannibalizing. In some cases, maybe the digital concert hall will actually recruit people into... Yeah. Um, they the, think it was it was good on the computer. Just imagine what it's going to be like exactly. if I pay for the ticket and, and turn up. Absolutely. Paul Bennon, you're also chair of Art Angel, which put on magnificent event, still ongoing, the boat that sits on top of the roof of the Queen Elizabeth Hall on London's South Bank and a whole series of artists, musicians going there, spending the night and then writing, talking about the experiences, writing songs. I mean, that's a project that wouldn't exist without the digital forum. It almost flips the concept on its head, doesn't it? Absolutely right. Art Angel for a long time has been thinking about this question of how one, in quotes, does digital art. And it's to Michael and James's credit that they only want to do amazing things. They only want to commission... This is Mike Morris and James Lingwood who who run Art Angel. That's right. This was a a subject of massive debate around the board. You know, how is Art Angel going to do this? What should Art Angel do? Should it do something? And then, lo and behold, the very first project that Art Angel has done that is, in fact, a digital project. And more interestingly as well, you start discovering when you do works of digital art that the most successful ones very, very often, if not always, involve giving up control. It's a project that exists physically. The boat is there. The artists go into the boat. But, I mean, it really only exists virtually, doesn't it, the project? Well, yes. It's a fascinating case study, I think, um, A Room for London in terms of how the arts can work in a digital space. You were frowning when we were hearing about the Berlin Phil experience. I'm completely clear that I think that disseminating uh, works of cultural value as widely as possible has wonderful societal benefits that are above, in many ways, the financial benefit. The reason why I was frowning is because I think we do know enough now about cannibalisation and pricing and restrictions of of services to know that the maximum benefit of... I don't know what the maximum capacity of the Berlin Philharmonic space is. Let's call it... The physical hall. Yes, let's call it 800. Now, let's say that the maximum potential addressable base for even a free or freemium product is how many people with internet connections. Should Should we call it 6 billion? Now, they're not all going to show up, but... In terms of making how free you can compete with paid for, we know it can. We know you can make an absolute fortune out of it. And I'd be very much tempted to treble, quadruple, multiply the price of a successful premium product by 10 
and you'll still make loads of money. That's going to be quite an exclusive thing to do. So I wouldn't do that for the societal reasons. Uh, Hassan wants to respond. Yeah, to that. I just think. I mean, I, I I do agree with that, but it's at the same time. My mind always goes back when I have these conversations about a conversation I had with a theatre, a London-based theatre, three or four years ago, which said that for a number of years they'd had the technology to stream their productions uh, onto their website, but they didn't do it because most nights only they had 30% of their seats sold. You know, it's, it's a perceived risk to them still, you know, that uh, these concerns about cannibalisation. But I would strongly <laughs> argue in favour of even that theatre company that they would have far more bums on seats if they started streaming all of their stuff for free on the internet with the knowledge that the premium experience, the wonderful experience was the thing that you went for, the thing that you went to. Joelle, it's just very, very briefly. It's effectively sort of behaving as a marketing tool really then for the live performance, isn't it? And potentially widening your future audience. It can do, but it it would be reckless, right, if every institution was just available for free, start streaming without any concerns about cannibalisation. I just think that'd be quite a reckless piece of advice to give to all organisations. I, I mean, it needs to be done more. I'm not saying it's, it would be something that you'd say to all people, but I would. I would just point to the massive litany of successes of people yeah. that, have, that have adopted no, no, a freemium let's model. Be, let's be clear. With National Theatre Live, for example, so this is the first piece of R and D mm. which inspired the Digital R and D Fund for Arts. This was one of our big research questions: the extent to which the NT Live, given that it was putting so much emphasis on high production values, would it be such a good experience that people like myself who live in East Finchley would forego a trip to the National Theatre to see Fed? in that case because The Phoenix was showing this production for a lot cheaper live and sure enough what we found actually if anything you had that effect Joe that you're talking about that actually there were more people from areas like East Finchley Well you mean people were were showing up at the theatre after seeing it there was, a the bit of that. Now, there was a bit of that going on. Through surveys, we tried to identify why there were more people, say, for example, in East Finchley at the National Theatre. It was more in effect that the National Theatre was able to tap the networks that the East Finchley as a cinema has. And in effect, it was playing a marketing device, I guess. So you're undermining so, your own argument. No, I'm just right. saying in that particular case, but that's the National Theatre. At right. the same time, I would be loathed. And in fact, even with the National Theatre's case, they do, they do these NT live broadcasts. They don't stream their productions for free. They would genuinely have valid concerns about the extent to which that may cannibalise audiences for NT Live. So there's Facebook no hard and fast a, empirical evidence heard at the a negative uh, case. <laughs> well, you have well to... there we go. Look, let's move on. Yeah. And we're going to move there on many, to... An, the film industry you mentioned, there are many examples of co- yeah. huge concerns. Fundamentally right? different, the film industry. As anyway, Paul suggested, well, this is a whole well, other programme. I think programme there's, also, I think there's also a massive issue, to... a massive difference so between publicly funded bodies and companies that are trying to make a commercial return to sustain their own business, actually. I think this is another interesting conversation that I know right. you don't want to get into right Not now. Not right now, because <laughs> I actually I want to draw the discussion back to your home oh, turf, yes. Joe, okay. which is literature. And yes. you've actually preempted this part of the discussion, because what I want to talk about is the way that literature books are using digital technology. Mm. At the literary platform, what shifts within the literary world is technology causing, do you feel? I think it's caused massive disruption basically to the supply chain. So the print supply chain was extremely expensive and extremely complicated and couldn't really be bypassed. And what we're really seeing is a pretty stagnant to declining print market, substitutional sales coming from e-books. Nesta had some statistics, which I can possibly offer you here. In 2005, 0.1% of publishers' income was accounted for by digital. By 2010, publishers saw... 2.8% 2.8% of their income from digital well, products. Well, it's estimated to be about 10 now. Yeah. So it's, a, it's rising. It's e-books, rising. Absolutely right. rising, and print is declining. So publishers are seeing ebooks as their sort of key growth area and sort of most valuable commercially. But what we're also seeing is a lot more experimentation 
creatively in terms of products and new distribution channels. So apps, we've seen the Wasteland from Faber mm. and Touch Press and the London Encyclopedia app from Heuristic and Pan Macmillan. And these are sort of, I suppose... Multimedia books, they're experiences that can be navigated in different ways, in ways that a book just cannot be navigated. They're creating a new experience. The thing that's most interesting to me is that most of the successes in the app world have been around non-fiction until now. Fiction has proved very hard to crack. And I think that's largely because there's a much finer line to tread between what is enhancing and what is interruptive in a narrative fiction. I mean, you say fiction's problematic, mm. but what about the classics? Because, of course, you can now download your Jane Austens and your Dickens on your Kindle yes. via Amazon. And there's a campaign being backed by Stephen Fry, Vanessa Redgrave at the moment, to get the whole of Shakespeare's yes. works online. There's a sprint for Shakespeare fundraising project actually being run by the Bodleian Library in Oxford. I mean, it's amazing that the whole of Shakespeare is not online already. Well, I know. I'm quite surprised Project Gutenberg sure. hasn't done it. I'm is sure it, they must not? have done. But it might not be in a particularly pretty form, so mm. they might be sort of wanting mm. to create something different there. But most out-of-copyright works are available now. But what I would say is vanilla e-books are much more akin to the print book reading experience. They're a linear narrative. Mm. We're seeing this sort of migration across... What, from uh, bookshops to online? To bookshops to online and from print books to plain e-books and then sort of on the other side we have this experimentation well let's move on now to television and it's a digital distribution future smart tv i mean paul just in terms of definitions what what do we understand by that term smart tv a smart television for me means there is a screen somewhere in the mix and it can play back video that someone's created for it And it can also execute logic. It can also execute computer programs. So it means that you have video plus the stuff that a computer can do. I've got some more handy stats to hand here. (laughs) Uh, Smart TVs represent one-fifth of all TVs sold in the UK since 2010. That's 2.9 million sets. 65% of smart TV owners have used the internet connection on their smart TV. Time on video sharing sites has increased in the UK. The time per person spent on YouTube increased by 42% between March 2011 and March 2012. Surprising stats, do you think, Paul? No, not at all. It's difficult to buy a television now that doesn't have an Ethernet jack or a Wi-Fi connection plus an application processor built into it. You can't help but get one of these things when you go and buy a new telly. The Space is a collaboration between the BBC and Arts Council England. Bill Thompson from the BBC team explains a bit more about the project. What we're managing to do with The Space is bring a whole load of work that would not necessarily be made available to people and we're putting it on the screens that are in front of them. In technical terms, The Space looks simple and is incredibly complicated. What we're doing is taking in material from a whole range of arts organisations, the 53 arts organisations commissioned by Arts Council England, uh, the British Film Institute, uh, other arts organisations who are contributing material. That all has to be ingested into our content management system. That itself is actually based on a well-known blogging platform called WordPress, but we've tweaked it and modified it to work for us. And so there's a whole range of back-end processes. And again, comes back to the sense that the space is an experiment. It's, it's a learning process, and the BBC, Arts Council England, and all the arts organisations are working together to deliver a service over these six months, but also to say, OK, what did we do well, what did we do badly, what could we do better in future? And that, for me, is the real value of this. 
That's Bill Thompson from the BBC who helped develop the Space Project, the space which describes itself as the arts live, free and on demand. Paul Bennon, you were involved in um, Jubilee Lines, a Faber and Faber project on the space. How do you gauge what type of content and platform is right for the audience? For the space in particular. Yeah. Um, it's, that's the most wonderful question because the space is, as Bill said, is an experiment. And lots of the different people that are sort of working for and with the space have their own prejudices as to what it is and, it, and what it isn't. I think it is not an online TV channel where bits of video and sort of linear content that could exist on a different platform are commissioned and stuck on it. it it's actually really good for that for loads and loads of different reasons. Mm. And, I'm, and I'm not denigrating that, but... I think it's even more special than that. The experiment that we've done is a way to make visual and the way to explore and the way to make playable with 60 poems that were curated by Caroline Duffy. Poet laureate. The poet laureate herself. And uh, we worked with a wonderful visual interface designer who made an artefact with us that was beautiful, it was attractive to look at and also quite functional in mm. the way that enabled to tie poems, readings of poems, to related archive material, audiovisual archive material. So you could read the poem, you could hear the poem being yeah. read, you had other add-ons, biographical details about the poet, the life Very and often. times, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Partnerships between arts organisations and established distributors like Sky Arts can also help increase audience figures. Having realised the appetite for the arts, Sky has moved the Sky Arts channel higher up the electronic programme guide on our sets, making the channel easier to find and creating a much larger potential audience. As Alyssa Bonick, the arts manager for Sky, tells us. I mean, we've seen our ratings increase from 2 million viewers a month to 6 million. And that's an incredible increase in terms of eyeballs to the channel. And so we've always found that viewers just needed to try the content and all of a sudden they realize actually it is something I'd be interested in. We recently launched something called the Sky Arts Ignition Series. And it was all about looking at our arts partnerships and how best to select them and also structure them so that we were able to bring them to a wider audience through our platforms. And so it was really looking at what a project holds and how best to be able to bring that to life. So what we will be doing over the next five years is investing in six projects to the tune of £200,000 each, and they will be leading arts organizations. And on top of that, we will then lend our programming and communication support in order to amplify the project. And so what it is really is it's a collaboration effectively with these organizations and projects from the inception to be able to grow them so that they really become integrated into what we have to offer to our audience. Alyssa Bonick from Sky Arts. Well, Hassan, we heard earlier from um, Tom Nelson at the Royal Opera House talking about creating a partnership with YouTube, and you mentioned the National Theatre's NT Live project, which you worked on, where you put together the National Theatre with Picture House Cinemas and broadcast live to cinemas around the country. What can the right partner add in terms of the audience demographic? It's clearly the case that to perform the sorts of technological innovations that we're talking about in the arts sale will require new types of partnership. If the objective of the arts organisation is to reach a new audience demographic, then clearly they can buy into that and tap into that demographic through the right partnerships. So most obviously, conservative art forms like theatre, opera, etc., clearly must be attracted to the opportunity to partner with cinemas, for example, digital cinemas, as a way of accessing their audiences. And of course, insofar as there are differences in demographic between cinemas and theatre and opera, yeah. it goes without saying that that sort of partnership will be important to 
meeting those access objectives. Well, let's move on again to the relatively thorny subject of copyright. It's probably fair to say that copyright laws haven't kept up with digital technology, and it's been a painful experience for some. Fiona Nurberg from 1010 Training has had years of experience working in rights negotiations. The costs and complexities of rights clearance are influenced by both the platform of delivery and the commercial model that underpins that platform. So if you're using third-party material to create revenue and you're successful at doing that and make money, it's going to be more difficult for you if you have not cleared your content correctly. If you're an arts organisation and you're producing material in a conventional context, so if you are hiring an orchestra or putting on a performance of a ballet, the framework agreements that you've been used to working with don't really translate particularly well to a new digital environment. And if you're moving from arts organisation to producer, essentially what you need to make sure is that you're buying the rights that you're selling. So the rights that you're selling or licensing, you need to ensure that you have purchased the same rights that you're selling. So there has to be a match-up between those two elements. That's what's difficult because historically, legacy agreements with large organisations like musicians and actors, etc., do not provide for that particularly well. I think there's been quite a lot of encouraging steps in terms of people just putting the toe in the water and seeing what happens, especially with the space that the Arts Council and the BBC have funded. That was a fabulous example of let's just do it and see what works and what doesn't work. And that's the way you've got to deal with it. Fiona Nurberg. Well, sometimes in the digital world, the early adopter catches the virtual worm. And the Creative Commons project is one such example. Since it began in 2002, Creative Commons approach is basically to pre-clear rights for use, primarily for digital distribution. The organisation's stated aim is to assist authors and creators who want to voluntarily share their work, and I'm quoting here, by providing free copyright licences and tools so that others may take full and legal advantage of the internet's unprecedented wealth of science, knowledge and culture. There are six licence agreements that a user can choose from to make it easier to copyright material. Although based in the US, Creative Commons has a growing number of affiliates around the world. And Jocelyn Appendrum is part of the UK affiliate team. She explains some of the background to this method of rights allocation in the world of digital distribution. Creative Commons came about because a group of lawyers, technologists and educators realize that there's huge potential offered by the web in being able to share and collaborate much more easily, but copyright law kind of gets in the way of that. When someone comes across a Creative Commons licensed content, they know exactly what they can and what they can't do with it. One of the neat things about Creative Commons licenses is all licenses require attribution. So that can work beautifully on the web because you're getting, you know, coverage, you're getting a name check and a shout out and your name and your brand can spread quite quickly. Anything that has copyright, you can attach a copyright license like Creative Commons license to it. So, for instance, these particular podcasts that you're recording at the moment, they are CC licensed. So in the arts, in government, in publishing, in the educational field, Creative Commons is quite widely used. The latest estimate I've heard of is about 500 million plus items on the web that Creative Commons license, so it's growing all the time. That's Jocelyn Arpendrum from the UK affiliate of Creative Commons. Paul Bennett, uh, it's not always as easy as that, I presume. Creative Commons 
for me, is very simply a response to the fact that a lot of the legal framework for licensing and copyright is in no one's interest. It isn't helping creators of creative work. It isn't necessarily helping businesses and it's not helping society. And Creative Commons just acknowledges the fact that our copyright framework is a bit broken and says, well, here is a concrete thing that we can do to try and assist that. So as far as it goes, Creative Commons is extremely useful. But of course, Creative Commons doesn't extend to a lot of or practically any work that's been grandfathered and is now owned by a corporation. Mm-hmm. Very complicated issue. Very complicated. Well, it's about this time in each of the podcasts that we've done so far that I ask my guests around the table to gaze into these crystal balls that I have um, placed uh, in front of you all. As technology progresses at such a fast pace, what of the future of content distribution? Maybe I could start with you, Hassan. Predict some massive leaps forward that we're going to see in the next few years. And I really put you on the spot. Yeah, as an economist with a forecasting background, I typically get, <laughs> I tend to walk out of the room when those sorts of questions come. Look, the, the, the area where there clearly is a huge uncertainty, but whatever happens is going to be some big change, is the extent to which audiences are interacting with the content that's being produced. Because still, in large part, what we're talking about is distribution technologies of traditional art forms. And one can't help but think that there's going to be massive opportunities to interact with the, the content and the experience. And, and we know there's huge audience appetite for that. Paul Bannon, as, as your job as a creative overlord at something else, this is this is your job, isn't it? Yeah, it is. This is your meat and drink, <laughs> predicting the future. Yes, it is. And that's why I know exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> no, um, it's, I don't know what it's going to feel like. None, none of us do. I'd say that art forms, cultural artefacts, entertainment that arises from complexity as an idea and from things that you can enjoy that, that are emergent properties from systems, that's one thing. Number two, I think, bots, AI, artificial intelligence, generalising around the area of a system that can act like it's pretending to be a human in a very, very deep way. I Mm. think there's a lot of ground for creative exploration in there and games as well. And Joe, you were worrying quietly about the future of the written word. Do you care to step into the future and report back? I think that we will see emergence of new storytelling forms which as Paul described will sort of arise out of complexity and and a blend of all the different things that are possible now and new things will be possible in the future. I think that the two massive questions for the publishing industry are going to be around digital rights management and I think maybe the last move they have to release themselves from the stranglehold of someone like Amazon which is such a dominant player in the market is to remove digital rights management. And I also think that in the long term, and I think this is applicable to all art forms, is that the demise of territorial copyright, possibly, I think it makes much less sense in the online world. And I think that would be a massive challenge to publishers. Well, there we go. The future is all up for grabs. We'd like to hear from you on uh, the subjects that we've been talking about in this programme. Please do tweet us at the uh, hashtag artsdigital, or one word. Many thanks to my guests, Hassan Bakshi from Nesta, Paul Bennon from Something Else, and Joe Ellis from The Literary Platform. The Digital R&D Fund for the Arts is open for applications until the 30th of December 2013. To find out more information or to apply, visit artsdigitalrnd.org.uk. You've been listening to a podcast from Arts Council England. Don't forget to share and bookmark these podcasts on the Arts Council iTunes channel or at the Arts Digital R&D website, artsdigitalrnd.org.uk. Thank you.